All right, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. We have been working through the book of Philippians and have been making our way through it. We've actually finished one whole chapter so far, so we're a quarter of the way through the book. And um, as we have made our way through the book, the last several weeks, we've tried to draw our attention to the, the theme of the first chapter of Philippians. The first chapter, and if you have a handout, some of this is written for you right in the introduction of the handout in your bulletin. The first chapter, Paul would have us draw our mind to a gospel-shaped mindset. In Philippians chapter 2, however, I believe that Paul maintains a focus on our mind. Look with, you your, look with me in your Bible at Philippians 2 and verse 2. Uh, Paul says there, uh, complete my joy by being of the same mind. See, the emphasis is still on mind. Then look at the very end of that same verse when Paul talks about one's mind or be of one mind. Then since you're there, look down a little farther in your Bible at Philippians 2 and verse 5 where Paul gives this command to the churches of Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves or which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is keeping a focus on our mind, our way of thinking, our mindset, but he changes the emphasis to a mindset or a disposition of life that is unified. You see, preacher, you say, preacher, where's that in the text? Look at Philippians 2 2. You got Paul describing this imperative, complete my joy, how? By, and then he lists four things. Each one of those have to do with unity. Uh, By being of the same mind, I want you all to have the same mind. I want you to have the same love. Being in, it could be translated one accord or full accord. I want you all to be of one accord or one soul and have one mind. So Paul changes the emphasis regarding our mindset to a mindset that is unified as a body of New Testament believers. And this emphasis that starts up here in Philippians 2.2, in my opinion, runs the whole way to the end of chapter 2. So that when you think of the book of Philippians, when you think of Philippians chapter 1, I want you to think gospel mindset. I want you to think about the gospel. But when you think of Philippians 2, I want you to think unity. Unity, for that is the grand theme of this chapter. Yet there are many texts and places in chapter 2 that might not simply feel like he's discussing unity. If you look around in your Bible, I'll give you free permission to do that. In Philippians 2, as you're looking around, you see many different examples and character traits in this chapter that might not obviously be connected to unity. So in Philippians 2, Paul will use the example of Jesus Christ. And he will appeal to Christ to motivate these believers. Later on, he uses the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he's going to have a lot of things to say about these two men as well in this chapter. It might not be obvious at first what that has to do with unity, but I believe that it does. In this chapter, in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, he's going to say things like, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's going to implore believers as well to hold forth the word of life. 
He's going to get very practical in this chapter and tell us, do not grumble and complain as New Testament believers. How can all of this be about unity? I want to suggest that in chapter 2, Paul describes some of the most significant or essential examples and values related to corporate unity in the church. In other words, what guides Paul by the Holy Spirit in this text in describing all of these examples, Christ, Jesus, or Jesus, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and what drives him to talk about all of these different character traits in chapter 2 is his concern that the church would have one unified mindset. Now, in doing this, I think that he exalts two primary or essential foundational commitments for believers that believers must maintain if they're going to be unified. And so the way I divide this chapter is verses 1 through 11. I believe that he is exalting first humility. Humility, individual humility in our lives is an essential for corporate unity in the body of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. And so Paul specifically mentions humility throughout this section too. Look down in your Bibles at Philippians 2 and verse 3, where Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in what? In humility count others more significant than yourselves. I think also of verse 8 when he's talking about Jesus and the example of Jesus in descending to die on the cross. Verse 8 he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. And so what Paul does in verses 1 through 11 is he will first state the importance of humility for a church to be unified. This is a core essential. We must be humble men and women if we're going to be unified. And then after stating its importance in those verses, he will use the greatest illustration of humility the world has ever seen in verses 5 through 11, the example of Jesus Christ. We'll say verses 5 through 11 next week. You really should come back for that one. It's going to be a good text. We'll look at verses 1 through 4 this morning and see the importance of a humble mindset. Go ahead and read with me. I'll read it out loud. You follow along in your Bibles. Philippians 2 and verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Here, Paul in these verses draws our attention to the connection between humility and unity. I think he does this in three ways. I've got three points. First, this morning, uh, what I'm going to call the grounds of unity or the grounds for unity, verse 1. Okay, And when we look at verse 1, Paul is giving us the reasons why we should be committed to unity. 
Now, in this one verse, he makes four statements about that I think that describe God's grace to the Philippian believers. These four statements are marked out in the ESV with the word any. Okay, so if you want the four points of my my, uh, first point, you see this word any repeated. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy. But uh, there is some level of controversy about verse 1. And it really comes down to, is Paul describing the close relationship and the fellowship that the Philippian believers have with themselves and perhaps him, their relationship to him? Or in verse 1, is he describing uh, our relationship to God and the blessings and the benefit, benefits that the entire Godhead has demonstrated to us? And I'm going to argue this morning that he's really in verse 1 describing all of the different ways that God has blessed us and encouraged us as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. So let's look briefly at each one of the, these. First, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. The word encouragement is a word that would often be used in, in noun form to describe the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes we think of the Spirit providing encouragement here, but this encouragement or exhortation comes from Christ. And so Paul is thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ has provided some level of exhortation or encouragement to the church uh, to be unified, because that's where this text is leading. That they would have the same mind, same love, same judgment, and so on. Um, it may be perhaps that Paul has something like John 17 in mind. The prayer of Jesus where he prayed that his disciples would be one. As he and the Father are one. So that the world might know that God sent Jesus. Lord, help them to be one. So it may be in verse 1, in this very first phrase, that Paul has something like that in mind. If there has been any encouragement from Christ in your life, but then he moves on. If there is any experience or comfort from love, we have also experienced the love of God. Specifically, Paul says here that they have experienced love's comfort. And the most likely comfort, I think, that he's describing here is God's love that previously comforted the Philippian believers. And so we're just going through this list quickly. If um, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort that you've experienced from God's love, any participation in the Spirit. Here Paul says, uh, participation or fellowship in the Spirit. And Again, he might be describing the the fellowship that we all enjoy as a corporate body of people, the the partnership that we have together. But it seems to me in this text that the partnership that he's describing is the fellowship or the partnership that we've experienced with God's Holy Spirit. Okay, and so uh, again, I believe that he's appealing to the Godhead and what they have done for us. And the emphasis in this phrase is not necessarily upon our mutual enjoyment of fellowship together, but it's on what we have experienced already of the Holy Spirit of God. Partnership often expresses 
a deep, warm fellowship that we have with other believers, with a person, normally when stated this way. But then what happens in the sentence is as the sentence goes on, it tells you what person that partnership is with. And in this text, it seems to be saying that we are partners with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul's listing down these things. If any of these things are true of you, if you've experienced Christ's love, if you've experienced God's love, if you've experienced partnership with the Spirit, and then the last one in verse 1, look down in your Bible, where Paul says, if there is any, uh, any affection and sympathy. See that there in the text? Affection and sim- sympathy. These two r- words are roughly synonymous. If there is a difference, the way I would describe it is this way. Affection speaks of our deep internal source of sympathy, which is the concrete expression of affection. You might translate that last one, mercies or acts of mercy. Let me illustrate this for you for for a second. Let's imagine that on your way in here today, as you're driving in, you saw a wounded dog laying on the side of the road. Internally, you might, you probably would, experience affection or compassion. Oh, look at that. Now, when you would choose to respond to those feelings, you would demonstrate mercies or acts of of mercies. And in our text, in light of what Paul is doing here, I think it's best to see these two words, affection and sympathies, describing how God has treated the Philippian believers. He's speaking of God's compassion and his tender mercies toward the church. Okay, so we've kind of worked through these four. What I believe Paul is doing is he's reminding them of God's gracious demonstrations to them through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he's going to use it as a means of encouraging them to obey God and to be unified. In a sense, what he's doing is he is, he is appealing to the grace of God, and he's using it as a means of modification. I remember as a teen, my father would try to motivate me in this way sometimes. Remember when he would try to get me to mow the grass? Instead of insisting on it, he used a series of questions, which I wrote down after later reflection for my own purposes as a dad. He would start something like this. Brent, what is it that you're wearing there? Where did you get those clothes? We all know where this is going. What did you eat today? And who bought that food for you, Brent? Where did you sleep last night? Whose house is this? Whose bed are you in? Brent, since you have enjoyed living in my house, don't you think you could mow the grass for me? Of course, then you're just stuck. You know, pull the fire alarm and get out of there or something. In verse 1, Paul reminds us how we have experienced God's grace as the grounds for his upcoming appeal to unity. And men and women, a great church 
one established entirely on the foundation of God's grace and one that wants to be known for emphasizing His grace in our ongoing life is a church that is motivated by God's encouragement, His love, His comfort, His compassion and mercies to love other people within this own assembly and to guard the unity that He established through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. See, we are all fallen, forgiven sinners. And God's grace must motivate us to be unified. That leads to the second point that I have for you this morning. We saw the grounds for unity, God's grace. But then secondly, the essence of unity, verse 2. This is a discussion of what unity looks like. Look at verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here, we we come across a very important part of this passage because it's the one main verb. Paul says, complete. It's a command. Complete my joy. Fill my joy to the full. It's a very interesting little command, though, because to me it's a bit mysterious. It almost seems like it's a selfish statement from the Apostle Paul. If I were to come up here this morning and say, I've got one thing I want you to do today. Fill full my joy. Say, well, that preacher is like stuck on him. It's all about his joy. Okay. But I think, and I'm going to save a little time here in my outline. I think that the solution is saying this is not a selfish thing for Paul, is to know that this could be translated like this Complete my joy, colon, be of the same mind. So what we learn about Paul is that his own personal joy is connected to the fact that he wanted the Philippian believers to get along together, to be unified. It's not a self-centered thing. He wants them to have one collective mind. The mind he's going to describe in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the mind of Jesus Christ. And so for Paul to say, complete my joy, be of the same mind is not selfish. It's actually pushing people to Jesus Christ that they might have the same mind that he does. So Paul specifically wants the Philippians to have the same comprehensive mindset. That is, that they'd be committed to the same values and goals. He wants them to embrace the same love, to be a full accord, the text says. It means, could be translated, one-souled. I want you to be one-souled sort of people, harmonious. I want you to have one mind. The mind of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul wants the Philippian believers to think alike and to love alike. And so in verse 2, he gives us the very essence of unity in this command. I want you to all have the same or the one mind and soul. That's what unity looks like. But Paul is not finished in our text. And so for the rest of my time, I want to study what Paul does here in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, in order for us to understand unity at a more practical level or in a deeper way, he continues by giving us the marks of unity. Or this is what unity in an assembly does and does not do. Verses 3 and 4. 
And in these verses, I see characteristics that lead to disunity in the assembly and characteristics that lead to unity. Okay, so look with me in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so we, we see first characteristics of disunity. There are three of them here. And the first unity killer for a church is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. With this one word in the original, Paul is speaking of desiring the spotlight or desiring praise or approval from others while ministering for Christ. And sadly, selfish ambition is not something that only marked the early church. It was not just a danger to the early church, but it's a danger to the church today as well. In my own Christian experience, I find selfish ambition rising up almost daily. Every Sunday morning before I preach, I sing a song I'm going to refer to here in a little bit about ambition. My own ambition. Selfish ambition is evident in the church today when we always go to the hospital because we want people to know how caring we are. Or we open up our house regularly to others because we want everyone to know how hospitable we are. Or maybe how good of an interior designer we are. Or we engage in evangelism frequently. And we tell other people about our exploits in evangelism because we want them to see how great our evangelistic zeal is. That is self-centered ambition. song I love to sing on Sunday mornings, uh, I've included in your handout. It's, I've got it on a CD by the Gulkins. And uh, there's a song, uh, a CD called By Faith. And the second verse of this song, Surrender All, is so convicting and challenging to me. Song says, Take all my cravings for vain recognition, fleshly indulgence, and worldly ambition. I want so much, Lord, to make you the focus, to serve you in secret and never be noticed. So I surrender all to you. I surrender all. Our own self centered ambition, when unleashed in a church, will be destructive. It will destroy unity. We can't be seeking things for ourselves. But then he moves on to the second one, uh, pride or conceit. The text says, do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. Believers are sometimes motivated to heap to themselves empty honor or an exaggerated self-evaluation. Conceit describes a type of arrogance that boasts in its own accomplishments and its own contributions. And so Paul, in listing out these things that will destroy or kill unity in an assembly, says, do nothing out of pride or conceit. Over the years, I've used three questions as tests of pride in my own life and the lives of other people that I've worked with. You might write these down. One's a little fun, but two are, well, I find all three convicting, but uh, I use these questions to diagnose whether or not I'm struggling with pride or others. The first question I ask people is, when you get a picture of yourself and your best friend 
Who do you look at first? What's the mark of a good picture on Facebook or whatever? It's how you look, right? I mean, this could be your best friend on the planet. One you've known, at, known for years, they could look amazing, but you look stupid. So it's a terrible picture. And our mind's drawn right to ourselves. I saw this year after year at Northland. I remember every year in the spring, yearbooks would come out. It was just blatant displays of pride and self-centeredness on that day because students would get their yearbook, they would open it up, and they'd turn right to the back. And there, in alphabetical order, they would find their name, and they, they would see what pages in the, the yearbook their picture is on. Oh, I'm on four pages. It's a good yearbook. They got their act together this year. Only two. This thing is terrible. I remember years ago, we were having a family picture taken at a studio. I hate that. I absolutely can't stand family pictures at studios. If you work there, I'm sorry. It's, it's a difficult job, I know. I remember going one time with my wife, and I think we had four kids at the time, and we went into the studio to get a picture taken. And we, I mean, we were trying our best. Okay? You got kids like bouncing all around the room. We're grabbing them. We're doing everything we could. The person's doing gymnastics at the front, trying to get them all to smile. So finally we endured. We made it through an hour of this. When we came back, she had displayed all of the possible images. We went away, you know, for a while and then came back, and she had all these possible images, and there was one right in the center that I knew was going to be our family picture. I mean, this picture, somehow this photographer got everything right. My daughter's twin, you know, twin daughter's hair is just flowing. She's actually looking at the camera. You know, Andrew's smiling. Everyone's smiling, but right in the center, the second I saw the picture was I saw myself. I thought, oh, no. <laughs> what in the world? I mean, for whatever reason, at that moment in time, when that, that camera was, was taken, I did this. I had this face. <laughs> you know, so I go through that whole next hour trying to tell people, you know, hey, maybe this one. <laughs> and maybe this one over here. Well, Andrew's not even in it. Yeah, I know. Who cares? <laughs> cares and for a long time in my home if you walked into my house you saw that family picture hanging there when you get a picture of yourself and your best friend or your family who do you look at first we're drawn to ourselves second question i ask to test pride in my life is what is your prayer life like what is your prayer life like why do i ask that well because proud people don't pray They feel like they've got it all taken care of. They can handle everything. And God, if I need you, I'll call. What's your prayer life like? Or ask this question. Is there anyone within a thousand mile radius of this church that you think you're better than? And if there is, might be an indication, men and women, that we too struggle with pride. Paul says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or through pride, conceit. And then in verse 4a, the, the, the next one he says is, we also should not look out for our own interests. We are naturally wired, men and women, to think that this universe revolves around ourselves. 
and our natural impulse is to make as much out of ourselves and our own things as we can. And so Paul says, look at the very beginning of verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Don't only care for your own things in this Philippian assembly. It's Paul's admonition here. And sadly, I think we often, in our own ways, will be looking out for our own things, even when it comes to church. We look out for our own things in our homes so that when we go down, it's time to go shopping at the mall, we go right to where we can find things for ourselves. This is why the selfless love of a mother really stands out, doesn't it? And what does a mother often do? She'll go into the store and she'll spend hours and hours looking at racks of clothing of small boys and small girls and children. But many of us go right to our own place, looking for our own things. But this can also be seen, that's kind of a funny one, but it can be seen in our churches as well. We want a certain type of worship. Well, because it's my favorite. Okay, and this can go really one of two ways. And, you know, my full body of experience here in two months being a pastor. Although, actually, I haven't heard any of this from you. It can go this way. I, I don't have the patience to learn n- new music or new hymns. We're looking out for our own things. Or it can go this way. I don't want to sing all that old stuff. Old, old songs and old hymns. Or we can look out for our own things by exalting certain ministries of the church. Because those ministries showcase my own giftedness. Okay, and so... What we see from time to time is we speak harshly about other ministries because other gifts are exalted. So if we have the gift of teaching, for instance, we have no time for evangelistic endeavors, and we belittle those in the body who talk about evangelism often, if we're not careful. Or the opposite might be true. If we're gifted at evangelism, we evaluate most ministry endeavors by how many Lost people were there, and how many people heard the gospel? And we can belittle the teaching aspects of the ministry. Brothers and sisters, these are unity killers. And instead of rejoicing in the diversity of ages and gifts that God has given to our church, we look out only for ourselves. And the church becomes disjointed. By nature, in Adam, We are all filled with selfish ambition, conceit, and looking out only for our own things. And these three unity killers, if we're not careful, they fill our emails that we send out to our pastors. Or the text that we send to others when we belittle other people in the assembly for not getting it right. These are characteristics that lead to disunity. But finally, let me hit in my last two minutes, characteristics that lead to unity. And the first one of these is ultimately very important. Look down in your Bible again at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others better than ourselves. 
Now, I would suggest that the word humility is stressed in this text in a few different ways. Uh, First, it's stressed syntactically by how it's even worded. In humility, that's the foundation or the essence. Do this, count others more significant than yourselves. So even the way this is worded, humility is foundational. It's important. It's also stressed uh, by the context. Because all throughout here, he's going to be saying and illustrating things about humility, like in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this is a very important word. But the, the translation humility, in my opinion, is a bit weak. I would prefer for it to be translated a bit differently because the word that stands behind humility is a compound of two words. Okay, the ESV translators have done a good job here, but the compound two words that stand behind it are the Greek words for humble, being humble or humility, and mind. So I would prefer that this part would be translated either humility of mind or humble-mindedness, if that's even a word. If it isn't, we need to make it one. Humble-mindedness. So Paul says, in humble-mindedness or humility of mind, we are to count others as better than ourselves. This is a very important concept for him that he'll illustrate for us next week. But then as we keep rolling along here, he says, in humility, we're to count others more significant than ourselves. The second characteristic of unity, or that leads to unity, is evaluating others highly. Count others more significant than yourself. The end of verse 3. Instead of being preoccupied or self-absorbed with our thoughts, Our minds must turn outward to other people in the assembly. And we need to look out for their things and evaluate them highly. I think this one speaks of a lowliness, a lowliness of attitude or demeanor that must describe us as followers of Jesus Christ. We're evaluating everyone else in this assembly as more important, more significant, and gifted. It leads to the third one, looking out for the interest of others. Finally here, at the end of verse 4, look at the end of verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but I'm zeroing in on this last phrase, but also to the interest of others. We're to be proactively looking out for the interest of other people. We're fixing our attention on them. This means that I am to count others as excelling over myself. And I show genuine concern for their interests in this world. As we close this morning, I have a few questions to ask. Moment of application here. Whose things have you looked after this week? Have you tangibly served others in the body this past week? Or perhaps a way forward for us would be to think about next week. How can you serve someone in this assembly this week? Are there elderly people that you can help? Is there a sick person, a hurting person, or someone struggling with sin that you can help? Perhaps 
in your conceit, you have not valued others as more significant than yourself. And maybe God, in his good grace, this week would, would help you come up with a small list of names of people within this assembly that you would look to minister to this week and in humility of mind treat them as more significant than yourself. If you can't think of anyone, our prayer list right now is full. It's full of people who are in the hospital, who are shut in, can't get out to church. I think I counted, there might be 10 to 12 people who are shut in right now in our assembly. So perhaps this week God would lead you to treat them more important than yourself. And humility, reach out and care for this assembly by God's good grace. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you so much for the text of your holy word. And God, I rejoice that all of this is rooted in your grace to us. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort that comes from God's love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and tender sympathies that you have demonstrated to us, may we complete Paul's joy by being of one mind and having one love and striving side by side for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would do this in our assembly for your own glory and your own name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. We go ahead and stand for the closing song. Thank you.